Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Be born of a virgin. Change water into wine. Walk on water. Rise from the dead. Doesn't it seem actually rational to believe that if a supernatural God exists, He ought to be able to do supernatural things? Question. Have you ever talked with someone who didn't believe in the resurrection? How did you respond to them? Were you able to give them an answer? In an age, in a culture of anti-Christian bias, and make no mistake, that's what we're living in. The idea of anything pointing to the reality of a supernatural God must be rejected, must be denied. Hello and welcome to this week's Crosswalk. This week we're moving into the next to the last chapter of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. It's taken some time to make our way through this letter and our series entitled Crossroads, Where Your Faith Intersects Your Culture, and we've seen several places along the way where the culture had influenced the church's beliefs and practices. Today, we start into another one, and it has to do with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Resurrection? Why would anybody want to come back into a physical body? That doesn't even make sense to us. That was the problem that was beginning to infect the church in Corinth, and it was due to the cultural influences. You see, as Pastor Clay is going to explain in just a moment, the culture in the ancient Greek world saw little benefit to coming back to life in a physical body. That influence had persuaded some in the church to reject the resurrection of Christ. Over the next few weeks, we'll see how the Apostle Paul built a strong case for both the reality of the resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection. Now here's Pastor Clay. We're not, we're not there yet, but we're nearing the end of this letter uh, that Paul wrote, this first letter they wrote to the church in Corinth. We have seen, if you've been here in this series, we have seen throughout this letter uh, all kinds of issues that keep surfacing in the church in Corinth, all types of, of uh, discussions and arguments and debates and confusion and misunderstandings and, uh, and, and cultural influences that had infected the church in Corinth to the point that it, it, had, it had created a breeding ground in Corinth for, for self-centeredness, for self-righteousness, for, for pride, for arrogance, for uh, argumentation, uh, and for doctrinal perversion. All of that was, was showing up in Corinth. Corinth was a hot mess. Corinth was a hot mess. They, they seemed to, to, to fall into more stuff, uh, get into more trouble than, than, I think I can safely say, than any other church in the New Testament. The church in Corinth is is both uh, is, is an example and a warning to us of, of the consequences of allowing the culture to influence the church rather than the other way around. When the culture has a greater influence on the church than the church has on the culture, Corinth is the poster child for that. By the way, before I... Before I seem too harsh about the church in Corinth, the modern day church can be a hot mess at times as well. We can, we can be a mess as well at times. 
As Paul has dealt with all these different issues, all these different issues, all these things that have come up, because Paul loves the church in Corinth. It must have broken his heart when he received news of the trouble and all the issues that were going on in Corinth. We know from Acts chapter 18 that the Apostle Paul founded this church on his second missionary journey. We know that he spent a year and a half in Corinth, pouring into the new believers, uh, trying to help them understand and grow in their understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. His heart must have been broken when he hears what's happening there but because that heart was a pastor's heart he wasn't ready to give up on them even though some of them had even rejected his apostolic authority to speak into that church but he wasn't ready to give up on them and as this first letter begins to draw to a close there's one other subject that the Holy Spirit leads the Apostle Paul to write and I I, want to specifically want to say that this morning because it seemed like over the last several weeks I've said a number of times why the Apostle Paul dealt with this or what the Apostle Paul was doing. And and it's true, it is him and it is his personality. We must never forget that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God led Paul to write what he wrote. It's it's Paul, it's his heart, it's his feelings. It's a supernatural thing when that happens. Uh, But but I want you to remember, this is is what God is saying to the church in Corinth and to the church uh, right here in this room uh, this morning. There's one more subject that, that the Spirit of God leads the Apostle Paul uh, to deal with, and it's an important one for the church in Corinth and for us. I, I, y'all have heard me say this before. The church in Corinth didn't need another reason to fight. They didn't need another thing to argue over, but somehow they kept managing to find something else to argue and fight about. This one is important, and it has to do with the reality of the resurrection. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. It's about the reality of the resurrection. And once again, what we see is that the culture, that outside of the body of Christ, the, the world, the, the community, the culture itself had an influence in this, on this subject matter. See, in the ancient world, in the ancient Greek world, The ancient Greeks were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Then you all have to take Greek philosophy in high school or college or anything? You remember Greek philosophy? Well, the the Greeks, the Greek cities, the ancient Greeks were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. A lot of them, but most particularly or most specifically, uh, Plato's teaching, Platonic thought, and later, Aristotle's teachings, Aristotelian thought. And, and while there were some variances in their teachings, it, it kind of meshed all into this overarching idea that the Greeks would look at the, the, the materialistic, the, the physical, the material world around us, the things you could touch or taste or, or feel, your, your physical body. They would look at the materialistic world as essentially bad or evil. It, it, was, it, was, it was the base, it was the temporary, it was the physical, and, and, it's, and that, that would lead to, to different kinds of extremes. That would lead to some people that say we shouldn't do anything in the physical world, we ought to shut ourselves off, we ought to be nothing. And then you had the other group that would say, boy, you ought to do everything with your physical body, you ought to do it because, and we've talked about some of them earlier in, in this letter. It would lead to those two extremes, but the overarching idea was anything material, anything fleshly, 
that's, that's evil or that's bad. And the spiritual, the, the spiritual world as, as good, whatever was, was not of this world, whatever was spiritual, that was good. And so as a result of that, that, that thought that physical, bad, spiritual, good. And so for the Greeks, the, the vacating the vacating of this physical body was for them the anticipation of, of something better, of a better life as they left this, in other words, uh, this physical body which, which uh, gets me into trouble and causes me problems and has all kinds of aches and pains and all that kind of stuff. When I, when I leave that behind and I arrive at the, the spiritual, at the good, then, then everything's going to be fine. So you can kind of see how uh, that, that, that dualism, that separation of the physical from the spiritual, you can see some connection between that and, and the Christian belief in the priority of the spiritual, right? We say that all the time. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. So you can kind of see how the Christian emphasis on the spiritual over the physical could, could be connected to it. It certainly was not the same as what the Greek philosophers were teaching. But you can kind of see how their teaching might begin to creep into the church in Corinth. And so the idea of, of the resurrection was, was beginning to be rejected, even within the church in Corinth. Some people began to say, well, now, come on, the resurrection of the body? Why would you want to do that? As Paige Patterson says in his commentary on this passage of Scripture, he said, the Greeks couldn't imagine the return of the soul to such a prison as the body in some other life, which is how they looked at the body. They, they couldn't even imagine. They couldn't think. In other words, resurrection. Why, why would anybody want to come back into a physical body? That doesn't, even, that doesn't even make sense to us. That was the problem that was beginning to infect the church in Corinth. And it was due to the cultural influences. Okay? So the Apostle Paul is going to deal with it head on. Now, here's what I'm, going to, here's what I'm telling you, and maybe, maybe some of y'all will like this. Uh, the next uh, probably three weeks are going to sound a lot more like an old-fashioned revival service than they are a theological discussion, even though what we are discussing is very theological. All right, I need some of that. If it's going to be, it's going to be an old-fashioned revival, I've got, got to have some, come on. I've got to have some, you know what I'm saying? If y'all, if y'all want me to shuck the corn, you've got to kind of give me the corn. So that's, I don't, I don't know, I don't, that's, that's what. It's going to sound a little more like an old-fashioned Bible. And the reason, here's the reason why. Even though what we're discussing is theological. I mean, to discuss the, the resurrection of Christ, that's a very uh, theological uh, idea. But the reason it's going to sound more like an old-fashioned revival is because Paul's argument, pure and simple, is the gospel. We're going we to wear it out, 1 Corinthians 15. Today, just the first four verses. If you have your Bible with you, 1 Corinthians 15. Text is up on the screen. Maybe you've got, a, got it on your phone. Maybe you've got a hard copy. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just the first four verses is all we're dealing with today. And that'll be plenty, I can assure you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Y'all ready? Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Father God, today, as we dive into just this opening uh, few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, on a vitally important subject, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I pray that your, your spirit would just overwhelm this place, that you would open our hearts and minds to truth that we may already know, that we may have heard 10,000 times, but may it be fresh and new in our hearts and lives today, because that's part of the point, I believe, Father God. May we understand the importance of the resurrection, not only for eternal life, but for our lives right here and right now. Teach us, Holy Spirit, what you would have us to know. And may we leave this place better equipped to be better followers of Jesus so that it would be better for the world around us and we can demonstrate the power of the gospel in this world. God, I'm, I'm very grateful for every person that's here, every person that may listen or watch this, this message. And I pray that you would use your messenger boy to deliver exactly what you would desire to say today. And I ask it in Christ's strong name. Amen. Amen. Let's start with this idea uh, today. Let's start with this idea. It's the priority of the gospel. We're starting with the, with, with the priority of the gospel. Verse 1, again, says this. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, past tense, which also you received, past tense, and which also you stand, present continuous tense. Uh, I, I make known. Uh, some translations have, uh, I declare. The, the Greek verb is gonorizo. It is a present, active, indicative verb. In other words, it, it, is, it is an action that is, uh, that is occurring right now and continues to, to be known, I, to, to be declared. I make this known to you and, and and I have no doubt that that Paul has preached the gospel to them before, but this is important. This is a priority. Actually, in the Greek uh, construction of the sentence, uh, the verb is in what's called the emphatic position in the sentence structure. Uh, in other words, it's an emphatic way of opening this discussion. It, it would be like for us today. It would be like somebody sticking a finger, you know, right in your face and saying, "Now, now, now you let me tell you something." It would be that kind of thing, or sticking it in your chest. Let me, let me tell you something. Maybe not mad or angry, and y'all would never do that anyway, but, but it would be like somebody doing it. Like, now, now, let me tell you something. In other words, this is really what I, what I'm, I want you to hear. Get a hold of this. This is important. What I'm, I declare, I make known to you. And what is it that he makes known to them? It is the gospel. The gospel. Euangelion in Greek. It is simply good news. In the context of, of Scripture, it is the good news. It is the message of Jesus Christ. It is the good news. Now, as I said just a second ago, I have no doubt that Paul had preached the gospel to the people of Christ. I know he had. He found it at the church there. I, I, he had probably preached the gospel many times to them. But here's the deal. The gospel isn't a one and done, ladies and gentlemen. So that's what I want you to understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard that. Got that. The gospel isn't a one and done. The gospel isn't information just for salvation. The gospel is information for transformation, ladies and gentlemen. 
It is the gospel that can change our lives. And Paul says, I, 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 want, I want to declare to you, I want to make known to you the gospel, the, the good news. In fact, he, he's so emphatic about it, and I, I, this, is, this is pretty interesting. I don't know how often this happens, uh, but it's pretty interesting to me that Paul actually, and I know that's all Greek to us, literally, it's all Greek to us, but I want you to see it anyway. Paul actually uses the, both the noun and the verb form of the same word in, in, the, in the same sentence. He says, he says euangelion ha ungelesimon humen. Uh, essentially, uh, I, uh, uh, the good news which I good news to you. Now, that's technically not how you would translate it. Uh, the uengelesimen is the, is the verb uh, form, and it, and it means to, to let you know the good news. I, that, I, I, I proclaimed, I preached to you the good news. But can you see the, the, this, this emphatic thing? This, this is the priority. This is what matters. It's the gospel. In all the midst, in other words, hey, hey, you remember that stuff I, I talked to you about before? You remember that stuff which, which, which I preached to you, that, that stuff that you received, that stuff that you, in which you stand? In other words, in all the midst of all the mess and all the stuff and all the arguments and all the disagreements and all the influences that you've allowed to come in, in the middle of all this stuff, don't forget the gospel because that's what ultimately matters. I've been reading uh, J.D. Greer's uh, new book, Above All, I uh, picked it up at the convention earlier this year. And um, in the book, it, I mean, above all, the subtitle is The Gospel is the Source of the Church's Renewal. And then the sub-subtitle is um, Above Programs, Politics, Preferences, and All Other Priorities. Gotta love a guy that puts all the letters together like that. So I, I, I hardly ever do that. But, you know, so above all. Well, but I've been re- I've been reading JD's book, and uh, in in the book he tells this story about a conference that he was attending. He actually was speaking at the at the conference, and uh, a speaker got up at the conference to speak, and he began to talk about the fact that uh, that really the the church didn't need to continue to talk about the the death of of Jesus. That it was time to move on past that. And, and then he said this, and JD said he said I wrote it down because I wanted to to. Get it exactly right what this guy said. And J.D. says, the guy, the guy said this. He says, we need to stop talking so much about Jesus' death. Everyone already freaking knows about that. We need to talk now about his life. Now, J.D., as it turned out, was the next speaker on the schedule. And, and to his credit, he got up there, and the first thing he said, and this, is, this would be hard. First thing he said was, respectfully... I would encourage you to never do what the last speaker just told you to do. Folks, we we can never move away from the gospel. We can never move away from the reality of what it is that God has done for us because it's, it's, it's not just information for salvation. It's information for transformation of our lives. Maybe, maybe if you're here way back in this series, maybe you remember the Apostle Paul saying this in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you to the, the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now listen, we know that the Apostle Paul talk, taught them a lot of other theological truths, a lot of deep doctrinal stuff. We know he taught them other, other stuff. But listen, it's always coming back to the gospel. That's the central idea. 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything else comes off of that. We learn more. We grow. We, 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 yes, all of that stuff, but it's always coming back to the gospel. That's the priority. That's the priority for your life, and that's the priority for the church life. Here's the second idea. It's the permanence to the gospel. The permanence to the gospel. In verse 2, y'all with me? By which, that gospel, which I, you remember that gospel I preached to y'all? That's what he says. By which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. By which you are Saved. That Greek verb is sozo. It, it's a present uh, continuous tense, but it's a passive uh, verb in its voice. In other words, uh, you, you, are, you were saved, you are saved, and it's, pre- it's present continuous tense, and you continue to be saved. But, as I said, it's in a passive voice, which, which is in the Greek is a way of saying, this isn't something you did. In other words, you didn't, this is, you were passive in this. You can think of that. You were passive in this salvation thing. This is a work of God. God came and did this work for you. God came and did this thing uh, to you. God saved you from your, from yourself and from your sins. Not you. It, it, it could literally be translated, you are being saved. You have been, you are, and you are being saved by God. Not you. Not all your good works. Not your trying to, you know, do the right thing. No, this, this is a work of God. And it is a continuous tense work. All the way back in verse 1, in, in, in which you stand, continual tense in that. But then Paul adds a clause. If, if, if you received and you genuinely received what I preached to you earlier, if you hold fast, to what I preached to you earlier. Now, I would say this. If you hold fast, although not grammatically incorrect, can, I think, in our culture, transmit the wrong idea. Could possibly transmit the wrong idea to some people. Some people might hear hold fast and think, hold on to. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the intent of the text. Let me, let me just tell you this right now. You don't hold on to the gospel. The gospel holds on to you. You don't hold on to the gospel. The gospel holds on to you. In other words, this is not a matter. You didn't save yourself and you're not keeping yourself saved. This is a work of God. This is what God does. You simply come in faith and, and receive this gift that he offers to you. The word, it's, it's a compound word. It's echo, uh, to have or, or to hold with the, with the preposition kata, down. In other words, it's to, it's, to, it's, to, it's to get this down. Oh, I got this down. In other words, you have truly heard the gospel not just some flippant kind of idea not some oh yeah i think yeah i don't want to go to hell that sounds good to me no you've truly grasped the impact of what it means to give your life to christ and receive his eternal life let me ask you right now have you done that do you know that you know that you know that you have grasped that you've that you, you you've held on to this you this is this is what you know it means you understand the truth of what it means to come to christ that's the conditional clause that Paul throws in there. You are being saved if you received what I said to you, if, if you understood what it meant. Uh, years ago, the previous church 
where I was uh, uh, pastoring. We were out on visitation one night, and we went and visited a, a, a home where I, I, we'd gotten the gentleman's name somehow, maybe, maybe his wife attended or something, I cannot remember. But we went into the home, and uh, they invited us in, myself and a couple other people. And we sat down and uh, just talking. And I don't remember if we already knew or if it came out in the course, but, but the, the gentleman was not a follower of Jesus. And we began to talk about the gospel and what that meant. And, you know, would he mind if we shared the gospel with him? And he was, he was open. To that. He said, sure, that's, that sounds fine. And, and I can remember walking through the gospel, or what I thought was walking through the gospel and, and helping to, him to understand you know, here's your problem. You're, you're a sinner. Here's, here's the problem of that problem. It separates you from God. Here's, here's an, uh, what makes the problem even bigger. There's nothing you can do about it. But here's the fix. God came down and he fixed it. You know, I walked him through the gospel, whatever all I, I said. And when I finished the gospel and I said to the gentleman, Tom or whatever his name was, I said, would you like to receive Jesus Christ today, tonight, as your Lord and Savior? He said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so I led him in what traditionally we call the sinner's prayer, what it means to, to just confess with your mouth that, that you're a sinner and you're separated from God. You know, I, as, as all of us maybe have done at some one time or another, words and then someone echoes them back because he said that's what he wanted to do. He finished the prayer, said amen, and, and, I, and I congratulate him that he's now part of the family of God and the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner and all that kind of stuff that you do on visitation. When somebody prays the prayer, and then, of course, the next thing I began to do was talk to Tom about uh, baptism and why we were baptized and why we should be baptized and how it's his commandment. And, and Tom said, oh, I don't, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to do that. And I said, well, but that's, that's the first thing that Christ asked us to do, go and make disciples and, and baptize them. It's, it's a command that God gives to us. Oh, that's, no, that's not anything I'd be interested in. Talk to him about about reading his Bible, and nah, I don't, I'm not really a, much of a reader, about, about beginning to attend church, and nah, I'm, I'm not a church guy, and, and I mean, whatever it was, he's like, no, no I'm, I'm not interested in that. Now listen, this is my professional, albeit non-divine opinion, but that guy was no more saved when we walked out of there than he was before we walked in. And, and, and you say, what, you... you well, you don't know what was on. You don't know what was in his heart. Yeah, I do. He told me. He told me what was in his heart. He had no desire to do anything that God, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Listen, I know this is hard for us. This is hard because we have loved ones. I have two sons that, that have walked away from the gospel and have no, no apparent relationship with God whatsoever. But we have to... to to come to the realization that it is possible for people to make some type of commitment to Christ and not actually be saved. L- listen to me. Jesus says as much in what's known as, the, uh, what's known as the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter uh, 13. He talks about a lot of different types of soil in there and how it re- you know, what, what it represents. But in verses 5 and 6, he says this. This is Jesus giving this parable. He says, others fell on rocky places. He's talking about the, the seed. He, the, the parable starts out, and he says, the sower went out to, to sow seed. The seed represents the word of God. It represents the gospel. The sower is the, the spirit of God. It could be us in a sense as we're going out, but, but the spirit of God sows this seed. Uh, and, and he's describing all these kinds of soil. And in verse 5, 6, says, others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. 
And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Now listen, we don't, we're not left to speculation as to what Jesus meant in this parable. Sometimes we are, not in this one. Jesus tells them exactly what it means in verses 20 and 21. He says this, The one whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. What? You mean I don't have to go to hell? Immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself. He has no, literally no root in himself, but is only temporary. Temporary in his joy. Temporary in, boy, this sounds great. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, we don't have time to read the entire parable, ladies and gentlemen, but virtually every conservative biblical scholar agrees that of all the types of soil that Jesus describes, there are all the different types of people and how they receive the word. In the parable, only the seed that falls on good soil is considered people who actually got saved, people who actually committed their lives to Jesus Christ. Listen, uh, in your face, James. James says, James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one? Good for you. That's what he says, good for you. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. You understand what he's saying? You understand this? It's the conditional clause. But, come on, Clay, come back. But, the point I'm really wanting to make, yes, I, you need to see that conditional clause. And you need to be thinking about, man, I need to make sure that, that, that I help people understand that coming to Christ means get, really getting a hold of this thing. Not some superficial, get out of a hell-free card. But what it really means to come to Christ, I need to make sure about that in, in my life and everybody's life. Yes, it's getting close. But the point that Paul is making there is that if you did receive it, if you receive the gospel, then you got the gospel. And there's absolutely nothing will change that. It is permanent in your life. You cannot, you cannot bad your way out of a relationship with God if you truly came into a relationship with Him. You don't believe me? Some of y'all look like you don't believe me. Listen, it's Jesus again, John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now notice that they follow me and I give eternal life to them. Now, let me just stop just a second here and just say this before I finish this verse. If you could lose eternal life, at what point was it eternal? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? How can God call it eternal life if, if you lost it? It wasn't eternal. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. And I give eternal life to them and they will, come on, say it, never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Oh, and by the way, I and the Father are one. You understand what he's saying? Man, you got it. If you got it, you got it. If you grasp this, this truth of, of who Christ is and what Christ did and what it means to come into relationship with him, then you were born again, you were adopted into the family of God and you can never be unadopted out of the family of God. The gospel is the permanence to the gospel. Third, the purpose for the gospel. Verse 3. 
For I delivered to you, as of first importance, there's that priority thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I must never, ever, ever forget the purpose of the gospel. We must never forget the reason all of this transpired, the reason all of this occurred, the reason all of this is recorded is for one reason, one reason only. Your sin required a perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ died for my sins. And the moment I forget that or, or put that on a back burner and any individual or church that, that, that puts that on the back burner and says, yes, he, he did that, but we need to focus more on, on the life of Jesus. The, 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 as important as his life was, as important as his teachings are, but the moment we begin to move away from the centrality of the death of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, we've gone way too far. We've moved way too far. The purpose of the gospel was to make it possible for you and me to be forgiven to become part of the family of God. And notice that Paul says, he adds in here, according to the Scriptures. Which almost certainly must be a reference to the Old Testament, since the New Testament had not even been written at that point. Uh, Certainly, the majority of it had not been written at that point. And I have to believe, and I know this is a little bit lengthy, but I have to believe the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had to have this passage in Isaiah in mind, written 700 years before the Savior went to the cross. But he says this in Isaiah chapter 53, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for uh, his own sins. Look at it. But he was pierced for our rebellion. Crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. Anybody got an amen in there? I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. But, yeah, that's a good place to give the Lord a hand. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. No other character, past or present, no other character in the Old Testament, no other character in the New Testament can fulfills that that description. 
Nobody. There is no, no nothing. The only historical record we have that, that fulfills that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And that was the purpose in the gospel, so that he could bear our sins. Oh, but I, I know, according to the scripture, I know it's Old Testament. We've got to look at some New Testament too, right? Maybe you've read this one before. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's that word again. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the purpose of the gospel. We're, we've all fallen short. Romans 6, 23. For the wages, the cost of that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses. That's how you were, that's how I was. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah is right. One more, how about this? Peter said this, 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? Say it. So that he might bring us to God. It's the purpose of the gospel. It's not just a word to throw around. It's not just, it, 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 he died for me. He died for you. He died for any that would come to him by faith. One more this morning. It's the power in the gospel. Verse four. And that he was buried and that he was raised and that he was buried and that he was Raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It is the power of the gospel. As I sometimes like to say, especially at, at, on Resurrection Sunday, especially on Easter time, but uh, dead man walking here. Dead man walking. Listen, the, the life and death of Jesus Christ is with, without historical dispute. It, it is without historical dispute. Only historians or men or women in general with a very great amount of ignorance or a very little amount of integrity would deny the, the life and, and death of Jesus Christ. The, the eyewitness accounts, the accuracy of the of the historical recordings, the, the truly worldwide change makes it impossible for it to not be true that this man lived and this man died. And it is just as historically accurate, just as historically true, just as obvious that he rose from the dead, that there was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It ought to be just as easy for anyone to see, except for the fact that dead men aren't supposed to come back to life, are they? Dead men aren't supposed to come back to life. 
And in an age, in a culture of anti-Christian bias, and make no mistake, that's what we're living in. In an age and culture of anti-Christian bias, the idea of, of anything pointing to the reality of a supernatural God must be rejected, must be denied. But as I have argued, and this, I, I, I'm just, I, think this is, I think this is a valid argument. As I have argued many times before, said it to y'all, I've said it to other people, if a supernatural God exists, just if a supernatural God exists, a God who, who is above the natural world, if a supernatural God exists, then doesn't it seem rational to believe that a supernatural God could do supernatural things? I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that actually seem rational? If, uh, no, but I don't even concede that God exists, but if a God existed like this described here, if this supernatural God existed, a God who could speak the world into existence, then doesn't it seem rational to believe that this supernatural God could do supernatural things, like, like suspend some of his, his, his natural laws, like do some things, I, I don't know, like, uh, uh, like uh, be born of a virgin, change water into wine, walk on water, rise from the dead. Doesn't it seem actually rational to believe that if a supernatural God exists, he ought to be able to do supernatural things? But it requires a supernatural power. That's the problem. It requires a supernatural power. And so if I, if I admit, if I'm a person outside of a relationship with Christ, if I admit that the supernatural power uh, occurred, then I have to admit that there's a supernatural source. And if there's a supernatural source, I, 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 I think I'm accountable to that supernatural source. That, th- that, that, that thing they keep calling God, this personal being. See, it's, it's the power of the gospel. According to the scriptures, most people believe that he at least had in mind Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's not going to happen. Only going to be there three days. Y'all know why he was put in a borrowed tomb, right? Just borrowing it. Just borrowing it. We're going to need it long. Look at this. Um, Acts chapter 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That's, the, that's what the power of the gospel is. What's happening It's changing people, but all things were common property to them. And with great, what's that word? Sorry, power. The apostles were giving testimony to what? The resurrection. Notice the connection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. I know you've probably seen this one, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the, say it, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 6, verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You understand what I'm saying? The power of the resurrection was not just to resurrect Jesus Christ. It's the same power that's in operation in, in your life and mine, even right now. The same power that brought Jesus Christ up out of the grave is the same power that will do the same thing for you if, Paul's conditional clause, you've grasped this truth, this gospel, this good news that I proclaim to you. Philippians chapter 3. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. That's what happens when the gospel gets a hold of your life. Count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Nothing I did. But that which is through faith 
in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the, say it, power of his resurrection. There it is again. And the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, I'm dying to myself, I'm, I'm giving my life away in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel took, took an enemy of Christians, an enemy of Christians named Saul, and turned him into a champion of Christians named Paul. Power of the cross has been transforming thieves and murderers and prostitutes and me. The power of the cross could take a a slave ship captain named John Newton and change him into a man who could write perhaps the most beautiful words that have ever been put to music. Amazing grace. Come on. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Only one thing and one thing only that can do that. It's the power of the gospel. Trying to clean up my act won't do it. Trying to be a better person to society won't do it. Maybe those are fine things to try and do. To be religious, billions of people trying that all over the world. Give money, do acts of kindness, okay. But only the power of the gospel changes a life and changes an eternal address from hell to heaven. I put it this way, the power of our lives and for the church is living and giving the gospel. Living it out in my life, the reality of it, I've grasped it, I hold it, I know that it's true. And giving it away to anyone that would allow me the opportunity to share with them. This is what God did for me. And this is what God has done for you. It's the gospel. His grace really is amazing, isn't it? And it's all made possible because of the gospel. We've only scratched the surface of 1 Corinthians 15, but already we can see the importance of hearing, believing, and following the gospel. How about you? Have you responded to the good news and made Jesus Christ your personal Savior and Lord? We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, discovering how to really live in the promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I get it from Clay Stevens. They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. 
and join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships, and instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.